0: Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge. My name is Nicola Torbett, and this is the podcast where we explore our weekly Christian scripture readings with an eye toward racial justice and collective liberation. And we do that explicitly as white Christians. We are white people challenging and supporting other white people to show up, rise up, and take action to dismantle white supremacy, embody a culture of mutuality and care, and follow the leadership of people of color. The last time I was with you, we talked about how strange it felt to celebrate resurrection when it still seemed so much like Good Friday, finding ourselves as we did in the midst of a global pandemic. Well, suffice it to say that has not changed much. We are still living through a time of mass crucifixion, when the effects of a tiny virus have been magnified a thousandfold by government indifference and centuries-long effects of institutional and systemic racism. And then, a few days ago, George Floyd was murdered brutally on camera by Minneapolis police. As I write this, the city, a place I once called home, is in flames and the police, as they always do, are escalating the situation with their riot gear and chemical weapons. And now I am hearing that the police have killed again a black trans man named Tony McCade in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm reminded that there is no easy time to talk about resurrection in this country. And that is why it is so crucial that we do talk about resurrection because these murders are just the latest reminder of a crucifixion culture of white supremacy that is ongoing and deathly, and in which we are all mired. Our hope, in speaking of resurrection, is that, as my friend Molly Costello often says, Good Friday in America may be perpetual, but it need not be permanent. We are called to take bold action in the direction of that resurrection as an act of faith, that faith that is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. For the past few weeks, since Easter, we've been focusing this podcast on questions of community, of who and what we are meant to become for and with each other as we work together to build up a new world. In a recent episode of the Fortification podcast that sought to root COVID 19 in history, Dr. Anjali Taneja cast a vision of what could have happened had we in the United States been other than we are. As the richest country in the world, she said, we have the resources, and we could have shut down this country mid February so that we not just flattened the curve, but squashed it. And then, We could have sent all of our ventilators and personal protective equipment to other places where there is virtually no access to such things at all. And we could have sent our doctors there to help treat people as well. That, I think, is who we are called to be to and for and with each other. One global community, sharing what we have with one another, caring for one another, being in it together. It felt so obvious as she said it like being reminded of something I had always known. But instead, somehow, we ended up as the country with the most cases and the most deaths, vastly disproportionately affecting Black, Brown, and Indigenous people, and it is nowhere near over. And meanwhile, as all across the country people struggle to breathe on ventilators, the breath of two more Black men have been taken from them. All over this country, black and brown people are saying, I can't breathe. And friends, believe me that I am talking to myself here. But it is too easy for us white folks to blame someone else, to point our outrage at the current occupant of the White House. And don't get me wrong, we do need to oust him. Or a few bad apples in a police department here or there, or a single white woman in Central Park who felt entitled to call the police on a black birdwatcher. It's all too easy to blame these other people and to distance ourselves from them, even to celebrate when they lose their jobs and are shamed, all the while making it very, very clear that we, thank God, are nothing like them, that we instead are the good white people, the ones who get it, who have the analysis, who can say all the right things in a social media post or a podcast. And meanwhile, black and brown and indigenous people continue to die. I can't help but think that we, ordinary, good-hearted white people, are going to need to change. To become bolder and more honest and more capable of true solidarity. More loving. More willing to give up what we have known and what we have had in order to become who we can be for each other. I think deep down we know the kind of community we are called to be. We just have no idea how to get there from here. About 12 years ago, I heard a sermon that I now believe changed the trajectory of my life in ways that are still in the early stages of unfolding. I had come to First Congregational Church of Oakland on an organizing visit. I was not a Christian at the time. And Reverend Lenise Pinkard preached a sermon there called, There is a Bomb in Gilead. The sermon was about the Holy Spirit. And I remember her thundering from that little music stand that served as a pulpit. We have already signed all the petitions and marched on City Hall and written all the op-eds and still we are not saved. People are still dying. Is there a bomb in Gilead to treat the wounds of my people? she went on to suggest that the missing bomb was the Holy Spirit. Now, I didn't know what that was, really, but my exhausted activist soul pricked up its ears because I sure knew that what we were doing wasn't working. She went on to explain that the spirit works from the inside out. While the empire affects change from the outside in, the spirit, she says, changes us from the inside out. And unless and until we change, the world will never change. I've never forgotten that message, nor have I ever stopped unpacking more layers of it. That's why I'm excited that today we're going to be focused on the Pentecost scripture, which is about the coming of the Holy Spirit to change us. So let's turn to that story now and see what it might offer us. Okay, I know I said that we were going to jump right into the scripture, which is Acts 2, verses 1 through 21, by the way, but you all, can I just say that I have struggled with this podcast? See, I had this whole idea about what I was going to say. I had even worked most of it out in my mind back when I thought we were only dealing with COVID-19 this week. I wanted to talk with you about the new wine of intimacy. I wanted to talk about this group of heartbroken and traumatized people, Jesus' disciples, who were all holed up together in a safe house in Jerusalem, still reeling from the execution of their movement leader by the state. The scripture tells us they are gathered together in one place, but we know from other stories that they are all there because basically they're afraid to go outside. Like black and brown people in America, they know that to leave the house is to put their lives in danger. They saw what happened to Jesus, and they know that they could be recognized by Roman soldiers or informants as his co-conspirators. Even their Galilean accents might give them away as followers of the so-called extremist from Nazareth. So they're holed up, and the Jesus movement, for all intents and purposes, has gone dark. And then I wanted to point out that as dismal as things seemed, the disciples had not given up and gone home yet. Peter and the Zebedee brothers have not gone back to the family fishing business. Mary and Martha have not returned to their home in Bethsaida. Instead, they've been sheltering in place, just waiting. I wanted to retell the story of the strange experiences these folks have had where Jesus had come to them and hung out with them there in Jerusalem, yes, even after his death, strange as it sounds. And at the last of those visits, he told them, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized in water, but in a few days, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then he descended into heaven, I don't know, I guess through the ceiling but not before they'd managed to ask him. So is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he'd been very obtuse and said, "Uh, basically, you don't get to know that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here, I wanted to make a little joke about how cagey that Jesus was, about how he was always giving you hope somehow, but without ever seeming to say exactly what was going to happen when or how we were going to get there. I mean, what does it mean to be his witnesses? And how is that going to redeem Israel? I wanted to talk to you about how many of the biblical commentators poke fun at the disciples for wanting the redemption of Israel for wanting the old glory back. And how unfair that is, when I think what they really meant by the restoration of Israel was the restoration of the dignity of a people who had been colonized over and over again, systematically humiliated and exploited for centuries on end. They were sick and tired of having an imperial boot or knee on their neck and they wanted redemption. They wanted to hold their heads up high and have sovereignty over their own bodies and their own lives. And that is real and important and necessary. And with their movement leader dead and Rome more firmly in power than ever, it was hard to keep hoping for anything to change. And then I was really excited to tell you about how one day something happened that changed everything for these disciples. How they were there in the safe house still, and suddenly there was a sound like the rushing of a mighty wind, and tongues of fire descended on each of them, and they began to speak. And they spoke with such power and conviction and hope that a crowd began to gather outside, a crowd of fellow Jews but from many different nations, and every one of them heard the disciples speaking in their own native tongue, even though they also could tell that they were Galileans. I wanted to tell you how the people in that crowd felt intimately addressed by what they were saying and filled with a contagious conviction, so much so that 3,000 people dedicated their lives and all their worldly possessions to the movement on that day. What a movement moment they were in. I wanted to speculate with you about what really happened that morning especially was excited to tell you about reading this passage last week with my friend, the Reverend Nikira Hernandez Evans, and how we had this great conversation about the eroticism in this passage, those tongues of fire coming and resting so tenderly on each head, so intimate. What would it be like, we wondered, to be licked by the Holy Spirit, we giggled about it, recognizing that probably we could not stand in a pulpit and ask that question. But then I wanted to tell you how I couldn't let that question go. How I started wondering what had gotten lost because we weren't allowed to think about eroticism within the church. How somehow we are supposed to believe that the divine is separate from our most intimate and sensual experiences, and how that led me to thinking about Audrey Lorde. And her essay the uses of the erotic the erotic as power and how that made me wonder if that was the kind of power jesus meant when he said you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you he didn't say what kind of power nigerian writer Bayo okomalafe cajoles us that when we feel utterly bound by the powers of this world utterly powerless to make the change we know we need that there are other sources of power. Like Jesus, he is cagey about what exactly he means. And in her essay, Audrey Lorde reminds us there are many kinds of power, used and unused, acknowledged or otherwise. The erotic, she says, is a resource within each of us that lies in a deeply female and spiritual plane, firmly rooted in the power of our unexpressed or unrecognized feeling. There are other sources of power that do not come from Rome or the White House or militarized police or even the unholy marriage of patriarchy and white supremacy. Gendered language aside, Lord is pointing us toward an under recognized and undervalued and even actively suppressed kind of power that lies, she says, in our unexpressed and unrecognized feeling. I wanted to wonder aloud with you about how the church has collaborated in that suppression with its Puritan overlay of propriety that forbids us even to think about the erotic in the context of scripture and about how much power has been lost in that bargain. I wanted to suggest to you that there might be a kind of joke in the text, in that part where the scoffers dismiss the disciples as drunk on new wine, I wanted to suggest that maybe they are inebriated with a spirit that comes not from fermented grapes, but from intimacy with the source of all life. The kind of erotically charged intimacy that bursts the old wineskins of conventionality and propriety and common sense and its dull gray insistence that it has to be this way because it has always been this way. Black liberation theologian Willie James Jennings Calls the book of Acts a revolution of intimacy, in which the Holy Spirit replaces our fantasies of power over people with God's fantasy of our desires for people. I'm going to say that again, it's so powerful. He calls it a revolution of intimacy, in which the Holy Spirit replaces our fantasies of power over people with God's fantasy of our desire for people. The act of speaking someone else's language, he says, as the disciples do in this passage, is a startling gesture of their desire for intimacy. It involves humility and vulnerability, this willingness to stumble along in a language that feels unfamiliar in the mouth. I find myself thinking about what it means to take another's tongue into our own mouths. Is there any greater intimacy? I have felt for a long time that if we were actually in touch with our feelings and our bodies, if we were in touch with the erotic, as Audre Lorde talks about it, we would not, could not tolerate this world as it is. We could not tolerate what is happening to other people's bodies and the body of this earth, and we would act much more boldly to change it. Lord uses the metaphor of a packet of nearly colorless margarine that comes with a small pellet of yellow food coloring that the buyer then would massage all throughout the packet of softened margarine. She writes, I find the erotic such a kernel within myself. When released from its intense and constrained pellet, it flows through and colors my life with a kind of energy that heightens and sensitizes and strengthens all my experience. And elsewhere, she writes, once we begin to feel deeply all the aspects of our lives, we begin to demand from ourselves and our life pursuits that they feel in accordance with that joy which we know ourselves to be capable of. Sounds like the redemption of Israel. The power of the erotic is a completely different kind of power than the power of domination and control. I think of it as the kind of power that is both generated from and sustains the passionate love of life, all life. This love is not free of suffering by any means. It is all bound up in suffering, from the pangs of childbirth to witnessing someone's last precious breath. But it is also suffused with praise and sensuous joy and great pleasure. There's a reason that the word passion refers to intense desire, but also to the suffering of Jesus. The word itself originally referred to the willingness to suffer for what you love. I wanted to sit with you for a moment in this realization that love is all bound up in suffering, that it is inseparable from loss, and that we feel loss and grief because of the piercing beauty of all that God has created and declared good. I wanted to sit with you in this deep intimacy, particularly in this time when we can't touch each other. Of course, this is the kind of deep feeling that Adrian Marie Brown is talking about in her book, Pleasure Activism, a force that she sees as intimately tied to liberation. This is also the kind of power Toni Morrison channels when she writes in Beloved about the Brush Arbor Church presided over by an elder named Baby Suggs. When warm weather came, Baby Suggs, holy, followed by every Black man, woman, and child who could make it through, took her great heart to the clearing. A wide open place cut deep in the woods, nobody knew for what at the end of the path known only to deer and whoever cleared the land in the first place. In the heat of every Saturday afternoon, she sat in the clearing while the people waited among the trees. After situating herself on a huge, flat-sided rock, Baby Suggs bowed her head and prayed silently. The company watched her from the trees. They knew she was ready when she put her stick down. Then she shouted, let the children come, and they ran from the trees toward her. Let your mothers hear you laugh, she told them, and the woods rang. The adults looked on and could not help smiling. Then let the grown men come, she shouted. They stepped out one by one from among the ringing trees. Let your wives and your children see you dance, she told them, and ground life shuddered under their feet. Finally, she called to the women. Cry, she told them, for the living and the dead. Just cry. And without covering their eyes, the women let loose. It started that way, laughing children, dancing men, crying women. And then it got mixed up. Women stopped crying and danced. Men sat down and cried. Children danced. Women laughed. Children cried until, exhausted and riven, All and each lay about the clearing, damp and gasping for breath. In the silence that followed, baby Suggs, wholly, offered up to them her great big heart. She did not tell them to clean up their lives, or go and sin no more. She did not tell them they were the blessed of the earth, its inheriting meek, or its glory-bound pure. She told them that the only grace they could have was the grace they could imagine that if they could not see it, they would not have it. Here, she said, in this here place, we flesh. Flesh that weeps, laughs. Flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. Love it. Love it hard. So I wanted to tell you that this kind of intimacy with ourselves, with our own flesh first, because it is actually not separate from all flesh, that our tenderness will spread, that this week, I think that who we are called to be for and with each other in these times, that allowing ourselves that kind of passion and deep feeling could embolden us to act fiercely to protect what we love. This is the new wine that will burst the old wineskins, nation states, borders, policing, prisons, every kind of ideology. These will burst because they simply cannot contain the new wine of erotic intimacy that flows into and among us. I wanted to talk with you about all of that. But then they killed George Floyd. And I saw and felt the trauma my black friends were going through. And I started to feel uncomfortable with what I had planned to say. I started to doubt whether I had any right to put my mouth around what Audre Lorde had written or Toni Morrison or Adrian Marie Brown. These texts were not written for us as white people. I started to wonder if I was presuming an intimacy that we or I had not earned. Because that is really the question, isn't it? Can we have intimacy? Black people and white people in this country with this history, which is not just past, but present, part of the thick present, as Reverend Lenice Pinkard recently called it. Certainly, so many of us long for it, but is it possible? I think many of us who long to be part of dismantling white supremacy are really feeling the separation right now, in these moments of acute grief and pain, we who are white are not always welcome in the inner sanctum of our black and brown comrades. We don't get it. We can't. On a good day, we know that we can't. We know there is really nothing for us to say that can touch the suffering. The truth is, we aren't in that upper room in which all the heartbroken and disillusioned disciples are gathered. There are no white people there. We can't be. We are not among the most directly impacted. We are not in immediate danger of crucifixion. We are not at risk of being consigned to state sponsored death. The desire I have to be in relationship with my Black chosen family at times like this makes me think about James and John asking if they could still be near Jesus when he comes into his glory. And Jesus replies, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Right now, white people in this country are not drinking and nearly cannot drink the cup that Black people must drink every day. We do not have the same proximity to death. It is hard to imagine the risks that we would have to take in order to come even close. So I started to think if we're not in the upper room, where are we white people positioned relative to this Pentecost scripture? Where are we in this picture? If we're in the picture at all, I think we must be part of the crowd gathered outside where there are a mix of people with different reactions, some curious, some longing to be a part and wondering how to repent and join in, and others scoffing, saying they are drunk on new wine. That scoffing today gets expressed among white bystanders in a variety of ways, including, maybe he was on drugs slash drunk slash dangerous slash out of control, or why are they so emotional? Or, I could hear you better if you weren't shouting. Or, he was committing a crime. Or, George Floyd didn't deserve what he got, but Tony McDade, he was threatening to kill someone. Or, let's wait until we get all the facts. Or, I understand the people are angry, but what's with the looting? Or, let's be rational. Smashing police cars is not going to solve anything. When it's boiled down, what all this scoffing really means is, this makes me uncomfortable. See, white folks mostly get to be the arbiters of what is appropriate behavior and what is not. And we presume that role all the time. And it actually actively prevents us from being able to receive the Holy Spirit and to be effective witnesses for change. The thing about new wine, and this is important, is that it bursts the old wineskins, including every measure by which we could deem something appropriate or inappropriate. It is all going to explode. It is exploding even now. And we, my friends, are rapidly approaching the moment when our existing structures will no longer be able to contain our love and longing for each other. What we are praying and grieving, and sometimes even laughing and dancing toward, is not reform, not tweaks to thoroughly misshapen justice and medical and economic and governing systems, but a revolution of intimacy. At the end of my last podcast episode, I talked about the free fall into repentance. This week's passage takes me back to that. Are we willing? to let life as we have known it be exploded? Can we let love lead us to tear up every institution that suppresses God's life and love and passion and eroticism and that destroys the possibility of intimacy? Are we willing to let it tear up even our identities as good white people because those too do harm? I wanna talk about what we're doing with Amy Cooper, that white woman who called the police on Christian Cooper, the black birdwatcher in Central Park. What are we doing when we pile onto the righteous rage of black people toward her? When we make jokes at her expense or delight in her comeuppance as white people? What are we getting out of sharing all those barbecue Becky memes? As we did a couple years ago, I guess when I did it, because I did, they were hilarious, by the way, I told myself I was trying to educate other white people not to do what she did. But deep down, I knew that was not going to be effective. I was using that other white person because she got caught acting on the same conditioning that also lives in me. I was using her to make me look better than her. And that is not intimacy. That is separation. That does nothing to alleviate the vulnerability that people of color carry in this country. It is time for white folks to shoulder our share of the vulnerability, to risk our reputations, our social propriety, our jobs, our investments, our incomes, our safety, maybe even our freedom or our lives. We don't know. Only the spirit can tell us what we need to do when, and then only if our ears are attuned to the dreams and visions echoing forth from the people most impacted, from the front lines, from the upper room. Friends, I know we long to be together. There are some people, some black people whom I love with my whole life. I believe we are meant to be together ultimately that the periodic separation between us right now is both real because of the real material effects of racism and illusory, because we are all interconnected and bound together by a love so much greater, richer, deeper, and more evocative than anything we have heretofore known. But we can't just magically be there. We need to sit in the discomfort and the longing and the agony of history And wait, sit a respectful vigil as we try to love across the lines. Wait on the new wine of intimacy. Maybe the message of this Pentecost scripture is that even when the longed for change seems most far away, even when things seem dismal, even when we don't know what to say in the face of the horrors, even when it seems that nothing we do is helping. If we can hang out long enough in that place, something happens, and it explodes all the categories. As visionary thinker Bio Okomalafe wrote on Facebook today, If justice is a matter of relations within a specific system, then justice might very well be said system's most powerful strategy for reinforcing its permanence. Justice might very well be reinforcement masquerading as resolution. And I can't breathe, hushed into the sleep of a broken neck. The haunting cries of broken bones flattened into a civil highway, all very modern. They say we must fix our eyes on justice, on the hilltop, on the roads that lead to a bright new day. I say where we're going, we don't need no roads. We will break into the edges and rush into the bushes along the highway, and only the wind will whisper stories of our marinage. We will anoint the bloodied bodies of our dead ones, and grieve around the sagging breasts of our old mothers, and there, in the strangeness of a gifted moon, in the generative failure of our fugitivity, in the sweltering heat of new histories and speculative futures. We will shift into another shape, and justice won't know how to find us. Amen. What is that sound? Can you hear it? Is it the rushing of a mighty wind of change? Or is it the prophesying of Black organizers in Minneapolis and Oakland and Tallahassee and Louisville and Georgia and St. Louis and Ferguson and New York? The call to action this week begins with a call to listen, to tune in and listen as closely as we can to what our trusted Black organizers are saying and asking for. For asks coming out of Minneapolis, I suggest you follow Black Visions and Reclaim the Block. Both of them have Facebook pages that you can follow. They are also both good organizations to fund right now. I'll link to their donation pages in the transcript. They are on the front lines and could really use our support. As of Thursday morning, May 28th, the primary ask is to call Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry and demand that he support calls to move money from the bloated police budget to public health approaches, to affordable housing, health care, and other nonviolent approaches to violent prevention. Call Mayor Fry at 612 673 2100 or text his mobile phone at six two six one two nine six eight four 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 three. That's 612 And tell him, cut MPD's budget. We need money to keep our communities healthy during the pandemic, not to murder them in the streets. And actually that's a good ask to make in your own municipality as well. Surge is connected to organizers of color around the country and is helping to boost their requests. It is also a place where like-minded and hearted white folks are coming together in one place to listen for and follow the spirit of love and justice. Join us at bit.ly backslash join Surge to receive updates and in the meantime, follow Showing Up for Racial Justice on Facebook. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Transcripts of this podcast are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. You can read more from me at my WordPress site, which is called The Longing is the Compass. Be sure to tune in next week to hear a resistance word from the inimitable Jean Jeffrance. I know they will bring a good word. We are building up a new world. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for granting us permission to use this song in a podcast. It was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, and here it is being sung by a movement choir led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. Finally, I want to thank our sound editor for this week, Maxwell Pearl. Max, so much love and gratitude to you. That's it for now, friends. So many blessings to you for good health, deep transformation, and loving connection as we build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.